Welcome, everyone, to episode 43 of Some Like It's Got, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and this week on the podcast, we're starting a streak of podcast episodes recorded in person, as our last episode, of course, Detective Pikachu, was in person as well. So I have my co-host with me in person again, Scott Harvey, for this recording. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Scott. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know how much of a streak it's really going to be. I think this might be the last episode that we record together for some time of the, the main podcast. But yeah, um, I'm excited that uh, we get the opportunity to do that, and we actually got to see the movie together last night, which I think it's been a while since we saw a a movie together, which is kind of funny since we've been doing this podcast for a year and a half now, 43 episodes or something, but it's probably been since like maybe Rogue One could have been the last movie we saw together. Maybe, because we didn't even see Mary Queen of Scots together. We didn't see any movie over Christmas Yeah, like even when we're in town together, it seems like it never, our schedules never line up or something. we didn't see Detective Pikachu last week. No. Yeah, no, I think this is right, probably... Probably Rogue One. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, well, like you mentioned, today's episode of the podcast, we are discussing in detail the third entry in the John Wick franchise. That's John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. As the third entry in the Keanu Reeves-led Chad Stahelski-directed neo-noir action series, John Wick 3 picks up literally only moments after the conclusion of its predecessor, with Reeves' John Wick having only a precious few minutes before his excommunicado status becomes active and his $14 million bounty goes live. The movie follows Wick's attempt to escape Manhattan and re-ingratiate himself to the high table to remove his excommunicado status. He seeks help from a cast of characters, including Halle Berry's Sophia, Angelica Houston's The Director, and several others along his way. But the star of the show, as always, is the highly choreographed, hyper-violent combat. Scott, what did you think of this third outing? Did its choreographed action and story leave you entranced and wanting more, or was it purely a loud gun show with little substance? Yeah, so this is an interesting franchise because, you know, when the first movie came out, I don't think there's any way they could have predicted that it would become what it was. Um, Because, you know, there are these action movies every year with, like, one-man army action stars as the lead. I mean, and most of them don't even get a theatrical release, if we're being honest. I mean, you know, Steven Seagal puts out eight of these types of movies every year, practically. Um, and so, you know, nothing against Keanu Reeves, but it had been a while since he'd had a hit when the first John Wick came out. And I don't know that Chad Stahelski, even being, with with his optimistic projections, could have, even with his most optimistic projections, could have seen this franchise becoming what it was and actually knocking Avengers Endgame off of the box office uh, top this week with this third entry in the series. But I think that what has drawn people to this franchise is, you know, what you said there, the impeccably choreographed, highly stylized action. And not just, I mean, when we say action, truly they encapsulate a lot of different types of action in these movies. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're so interesting and so successful. In addition to the fact that Everything is just extremely well staged. You know, Chad Stahelski was obviously a stunt coordinator uh, before he was a director. So he, you know, that expertise clearly comes in handy here. And you can see that on display. But, you know, you get the Hong Kong, like martial arts style fighting of of movies like like John Woo movies. You have big stunts like you get in the Mission Impossible movies. You have like the cartoonish over the top, like gunfights and stuff like that, that you see in franchises like Fast and Furious and, and Kingsman. Um, and so they're really just combining a lot of different elements from different action franchises that everyone loves. And they've created we- this weird, like almost operatic, violent epic. You know, we're in the third chapter here and, you know, spoiler alert, I guess, that they're not slowing down, right? There, there's gonna, definitely going to be a fourth one based on how this one was set up. And, you know, based on how much money it, it made, like, there's no reason why they shouldn't make a fourth one, honestly. But as far as this movie goes, like, for me, this was the most satisfying entry in the franchise. I think that the first two movies are really solid. The first movie, the first movie for me is actually probably at the bottom, uh, which is not to say that I didn't like it, but I think it was a slow, it was, it was a bit too slow of a burn in the beginning of the movie. And I think there's not quite as much creativity on display in the action scenes as there are 
in the follow-ups. I thought John Wick two took it to another, to, you know, took it a step up, took it to another level. And I think John Wick three goes even a step further. I think this was really the first John Wick movie where I was actually interested in the story. Um, you know, I that's not to say that I you know didn't care at all in the first two movies, but I think that it's more about the action in those first two movies. And while there is some great action. I mean, best action in the series, probably some of the in some of the set pieces in this movie. I think they tie it together nicely, so that in the story sections of the movie, you're not just sitting there wait, waiting for there to be another action sequence. And, and you know, maybe that is a lot to do with the fact that we've had two movies before this, right? We've established the characters, we've established the storylines. Now, they're not really world building so much anymore as they are. Uh, just playing off of what we loved about the old movies. So maybe that's why, you know, you, you feel more invested in the story. But nevertheless, like, the fact that they have created that sort of feeling towards these characters in this story shows that, you know, what an excellent job over that they've done over the course of this tr- trilogy of drastically, drastically taking a step forward in each movie. And I think that's something you don't get in a lot of trilogies. A lot of times, you know, by the t- time you get to the third movie, people are sort of worn out. It's it's It can be a lot of the same and even though on a superficial high level, this is a lot of the same in the sense that it's John Wick killing a bunch of people. They really reinvent the, the wheel every time. And I mean, some of these action sequences, you're seeing stuff that you've never seen before, like in every single minute, you know, the horse sequence that, uh, you know, was much hyped before this. It's a great sequence. It's not the best action sequence in this movie. And I think that really speaks for what they're able to do with these action sequences. And I think the movie does go on for a little bit too long. Um, I think that Halle Berry's supporting role felt a little thin to me. Like, she sort of phoned it in a little bit. But I think that... Maybe she spent too much time preparing for the choreography. Yeah, yeah. And and less time in her her lines and her uh, performance otherwise. I think that's probably accurate. And she really really is only in 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Really not very much at all, um, despite how she was billed. Overall, uh, this is a really satisfying action movie. Again, you're going to see things you've never seen before. I mean, we, we were, again, we saw this movie together and we were just like cackling through a lot of the action sequences because they take it to such ridiculous over-the-top lengths, but I think that's why Keanu Reeves' performance feels so right because he's so intense in everything, right? And he grounds the movie at least as much as you can ground a movie like this. And yeah, I mean, this franchise is not slowing down. It's gotten better with each entry for me, and so that makes me only more excited for the fourth one. Yeah, we, we felt very similar, I think, about the first two movies. I, I saw a, a notable increase in the quality going into the second movie, and I think that a, a lot of that had to do with a better balance of combat and what types of combat they were doing, as well as a little bit better pacing. And not to say that the story in the second one was better than the first one, because I think they're kind of equally both things that don't necessarily all tie together that well. But I thought a lot of the moving parts uh, solidified a little bit. And I think that you see that happen in the third one. And it also uh, it, it expands itself out a little bit more. It cre- Like you mentioned, creates that story that you care a little bit more about. It somehow creates an even better balance while still adding new things to the, to the combat. I mean, in the first movie, it felt like almost entirely gunplay. The second movie felt like a nicer balance of gunplay with hand-to-hand. This one's some like weird, intricate balance of gunplay, f- hand-to-hand combat, knife fighting, axe throwing, horse fighting, horse fighting, <laughs> dog fighting. Yeah, he, I mean, <laughs> we talk about the the, the much touted horse scene of him riding a horse through New York, but there's a scene where he literally uses the horse before that, leading into right. that, where he uses the horse as a weapon, which is just like ridiculous. And there are dogs. Um, oh, the dogs. Holly Berry's dogs yeah. as well. Who just animal combat rip people limb from limb practically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A- animal combat was was a new entry in this in this movie and it makes you one of those things where at, you know we all juggling going into the second one maybe if you knew the third one was going to come out like oh like what are they going to be able to do to top the combat in this one yeah. and we said this all the time about Mission Impossible for the Mission right. Impossible franchise and I left the movie yesterday thinking well goodness like what are they going to do to top the combat in this one and you know what I guarantee you in that fourth one when it does come out they're going to find some way to top it right and that's what that's one thing that's really awesome about this about about this series and it it definitely has grown on me with each entry. I said something to my Letterboxd review last night where this movie gets to reap the rewards of a lot of really hard work that the first two movies did and maybe wasn't necessarily appreciated for. For me, one of the things that I liked about even from the very first movie was the world that it was that you could see it was constructing. And a lot of that storytelling that it was doing wasn't around, oh, let me tell you about how this thing happens or this thing happens. It was very much a visual lesson and you get little bits here and there. 
I like to think of it as kind of like a lot of lore rather than a lot of story about the world. And I think you really get more and more of that in each of the second movie, learning a little bit more about the Continental. In the third movie, it's a lot more about learning about the high table and how that works. And so I think that this kind of drip, drip, drip fashion of un- unveiling a little bit more about the world is one of the things that I like most about this series. And, a sp- and it's continued in this third entry. And I'm really interested to see where it goes in the fourth movie going forward. And it's it, this is one of those movies where I had so much fun in it. And I think this speaks to exactly what you were saying. And as much as I am concerned always whenever a sequel is kind of immediately announced or even announced prior to a movie's release, which is more or less what they were banking on with the ending that they set up. Mm -hmm. I'm not concerned, though, because everything that this franchise has done is, to your point, building entry on entry. And if if this last entry is any indication, I'm not necessarily saying they could could surpass this entry, although there there are things that I could point to be like, if this was better, the movie would be better. If this was better, the movie would be better. But even if they create something of a similar quality to this one, I mean, let them let them do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think to your point, like they've introduced new hooks in the story each time, you know, in addition to the action scenes getting more creative, the story itself has gotten deeper as the three movies go uh, along. You know, you mentioned we learn more about the high table. We also learn uh, a little bit about John Wick's background. And I wonder if the fourth movie might lean in, you know, any deeper into that because, you know, beyond the fact that he lost his wife, He had his dog was killed, he lost his car. Um, you know, the things which really drove the plot in the first and even the second movie to an extent. We don't know a lot about John Wick's background about how he got to be the incredible killer that he is. It, uh, you know, despite these sort of vague... Uh, outside of these sort of vague comments that other people make, like, oh, you know, he's the Baba oh, yeah, Yaga. Yeah. You, you hint, hint at that a little bit in this movie uh, with the a, a small subplot involving Angelica Houston... And, I mean, you know, you learn that John Wick isn't actually his real name, um, which is kind of interesting. But, uh, again, I, I, I'm hoping that maybe, you know, with the fourth movie, they'll lean in e- even further into that. Because, again, with the story, they have introduced new hooks each time around. And maybe that's where they go with it the fourth time around. But wherever they do go, the improvement that they've made over the course of this series makes me confident that even if I can't think of the ways that they're going to improve in the next movie, they are. And the fact that we can't think of them, can't think of the ways, but know they are, really speaks to, um, you know, what they've done here. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's one of those situations where I think this movie is so reliant on someone like Keanu Reeves in that lead role to give the performance that he's giving. And at this point, you know, Chad Stahelski, completely unknown director previously before he kind of co-directed the first one with with David Leitch, I think. But, you know, taking it into his own in the second movie by himself into the third movie. I think this movie and this franchise really needs Stahelski to continue to want to make these films because I'm not sure if there's another director out here who can quite do the choreographed combat that you see on screen. Uh, at, at least envision it. I, mean, I have no idea who else is in the room with him and who's crafting that vision for what these scenes look like. I'm sure there's a lead choreographer, etc., on the project. But to have Stahelski there to pull everything together, I think is so critically important. And I think that leads me into the first topic that I want to talk about. We've mentioned it a little bit already, and that is the highly stylized combat. I mean, definitely the selling point of these movies. Maybe the first one was selling you on Keanu Reeves and a revenge story. But since that first one, and especially since the second one, I think this is selling you on something that only this movie, at least you know that I can think of off the top of my head, is able to do. And that's incredibly choreographed action. You mentioned it already. Scott, what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, the vision that they have to have for these scenes is one thing. I mean, it, it's incredible just the vision that they have to even think that they can pull certain things off. And then the fact that they do pull them off, like the execution of, I mean, there are long, these are long scenes, I mean, involving a lot of uh, extras and a lot of people that uh, John Wick is just beating up. And, and very few cuts, too, which is the Right, yeah, yeah. Of, the, no, yeah. The, the editing, the, or lack thereof, I guess you would say, um, is, is definitely one of the hallmarks of this franchise. Um, and I think that's another thing that draws people to these scenes. But there's so much effort and so much um, craft that goes into these action sequences. You know, it is kind of disappointing that there's not, you know, a, a obvious award that they give at uh, major awards shows to this, the people who are involved in crafting these action sequences. Because I think, you know, they put every the, the same ounce of energy into crafting action sequences um, as Terrence Malick does into his symbolism and, and you know, the, the hallmarks that he's known for in his films. 
but they're not going to get that kind of recognition just because, again, we've talked about this before, genre film does not get the uh, accolades and recognition that it deserves. With only a few exceptions, there are always qualifiers when, you know, critics and stuff talk about genre films um, because, you know, for whatever reason, for the because it, uh, you know, appeals to a mass audience, I think a lot of people tend to see, see it as less. But I think this is a perfect example of a movie that appeals to a mass audience for a reason, because it's really well done and because, yeah, okay, maybe action isn't the type of genre that's going to get your brain cells firing, but that's not what you want every time you go to the movies, especially during the summer. Um, you want this kind of, uh, you know, brainless escapade uh, to an extent. Uh, and I think brainless is almost oversimplifying what yeah, Wick yeah, yeah, yeah. is doing. Well, that's why I say to yeah. an extent. I think there's a little bit more going on here than that. But I think that... Uh, but you don't go to this movie for the story, to be fair. To yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, action movies, to me, can get repetitive if you're doing the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of them are. And I didn't... Only maybe in the last 10 or 15 minutes of this movie did I ever feel a little bit weary of what was going on. So I think that again, speaks to the craft of, uh, of what they do with these action sequences. And again, the creativity. I mean, who would even think about doing that horse scene in the movie? Who would think about having these dogs? Let alone in downtown New York. Yeah, the knife fight inside the museum. Who would, I mean, the, the vision that goes into them is, is crazy, and then the actual execution of them is crazy too. And all of the performers, even the people who are on screen for 20 seconds and then get killed all play a huge role in making these action sequences as special as they are. And I'm not sure we'll see anything quite as good as some of the scenes we see in this movie, maybe until the next Mission Impossible comes out. Yeah, we'll see. Because even the hook of Mission Impossible is like, death-defying stunts is not exactly the same as what was what you're seeing here. Yeah. And so that's why I think that, I mean, yes, maybe these movies would are, are rivals and it's good that they're being released in different years because they probably would eat at each other's box office. But at the same time, you aren't getting the same thing in Mission Impossible that you're getting from John Wick. Yeah. And one thing I do want to add is I was, as I was reading this is I didn't realize that not only is Chad Tehelski a former stunt double, etc., he actually was Keanu Reeves' stunt double in the Matrix trilogy, ah. which explains a lot about the connection between yeah. this director and this actor and, and how well they seem to be in sync in mm-hmm. the production of this movie. You know, there there are there are you know Academy Awards Oscars for certain values of the production design, like and it, it wouldn't be out of place for something like best choreography to be in there. It's one of those just from the Academy's perspective that I'd imagine is is maybe difficult to fill out year over year. That being said, you know they didn't have an animated uh, award at the Oscars until just you know two decades. Yeah, ago, I mean so. they they have the makeup and hairstyling, which they only have three three nominees. Three nominees so yeah. I mean, why not do that? I mean, there's definitely at least three movies worthy each year. I would say. Oh, yeah, I'm sure yeah. something like Suspiria last year might be able to do it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think if there's a natural next category to add to the Oscars, maybe so. Maybe that's it, but I don't know. I mean, there's no more compelling will. reason, too, just like yeah. this movie. And you're right. It's a, it's a genre film. It's an action film. It's, you know, a summer box office flick that the Academy almost, you know, tries their best every single year to overlook. You saw it last year with Mission Impossible Fallout. You've seen it in previous years with similar movies. So they're probably not, to your point, they're probably not going to add it, but... No movie better encapsulates best choreography than this film. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott, moving on, talk about some of the act- the acting here. Well, no better place to start the for Keanu Reeves here. You know, John Wick, he's been refining this role in the first two films. Do you think he masters it in this third movie, or is there something still left that he could that he could progress toward? Yeah, I mean, so I've always been I've always gone to bat for Keanu Reeves. Like even before the John Wick franchise became a thing, I think that he gets a bad rep sometimes with his acting because he is so intense right that's his thing he is like the intensity that is just it can get it can get to the point where it's almost comic how intense he is but i think that's because he's put in some of the wrong projects right like sure. that kind of style of acting is only going to work in certain movies and he's not always cast in those movies unfortunately and i think that's why maybe he gets a bad rap but man i think you look now at this franchise right one of the defining action franchises of the 2010s you look at last decade, he had one of the defining action franchises of the decade in The Matrix. Go back to the 90s, and you have Speed, which is, like, for me, top of the list when you talk about act best action movies of all time. So you're talking about three decades of this guy leading action movies, you know, being the guy at the top of the bill um, who, you know, th- these franchises are really anchored around. And honestly, at this point... After Tom Cruise, I'm not really sure if there's anyone better that you turn to when you're talking about 
starting an action franchise, starting a franchise in this particular genre. Um, I think he's proved himself again and again that this is where he belongs. Not to say that he hasn't been excellent outside of that the action genre as well, because I have liked him in some dramatic roles as well. Um, but I think that I love seeing the fact that this franchise has really brought him back to prominence and reinstituted that admiration that people had for him back in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, before the Matrix sort of got out of control and people didn't really feel so great about the the last two movies in that franchise. You know, Keanu was the guy. He was he was uh, he was a huge name and I think he's gotten back to that point now and the fact that he's given such a juicy character uh, to play here you know, his name is the title, right? If you don't, if you don't care about John Wick, if you don't like John Wick, then these movies don't work. Uh, and that all falls on Keanu Reeves for the most part uh, to to make us invested in the character, and he does that. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, could go on and say more good things about him because I, you know, I, I want people to to start putting him in more movies. Um, but even if it's just John Wick movies from here on out, he's proven that uh, he can. Uh, he can anchor this franchise, and he can anchor a lot of franchises. And, you know, what he does in the action sequences as well, I mean, is incredibly impressive because all of the other, you know, stunt doubles, extras, whoever, the other people involved in these action sequences, but all of them, for the most part, involve Keanu Reeves. So he's doing, he's taking the preparation that one of these people is doing, and you multiply that by 10, 20 times, and that's what he's doing because he has to be involved in every single one of these action sequences. So uh, he really committed, and it really pays off here. Yeah, Keanu is someone who I think, I mean, obviously he built an incredible name for himself through the 90s and then, you know, kind of culminated with that first Matrix movie. And then his reputation definitely took a dip with the, you know, the last two Matrix movies and then almost every single project that he did in the mid to late thousands and then early 2010s. And it's only John Wick, probably, that kind of reinvigorated, you know, his career. I mean, to be honest with you, I talked about those straight-to-DVD movies at the top. I wouldn't be surprised if he did have one or two of those in his filmography, because I think it did reach that point. I think Um, he probably has more than one or two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the point is, like, the the John Wick, this franchise, brought him back. And I'll raise my hand and say, you know... It's it's fine to be super serious and hyper and hyper serious in these movies. The fr- it fits the franchise. My problem with him in the second one was that he dialed it up to eleven and never really had any range within that. And this one, I felt like he gives you a little bit more range. I think the characters maybe crafted a little bit better in this movie for him to do that. Again, I think it's it's one of those things that's hard to tell sometimes whether it's you know all Keanu, all all the director, or some mix of the two. And I think in this one, they found that right balance a little bit better. So. He, he was one of the weaker points of the second one for me, and I think that he really he brought that back in, in the third one to to a level that was much more satisfying. And and you're absolutely right, like you know, especially after this movie, and, and you combine that with Speed with The Matrix, I think he's one of those people where you point to, you know, being able to anchor several action oriented. Not, I mean, I shouldn't say a franchise for Speed, but you know, action oriented movies that, and then to become a franchise with Matrix and John Wick, and. You're right. I don't know if I turned to anyone else other than Tom Cruise and Keanu Reeves at the top of my list at this point. And what's crazy is that they're both in their 50s. It's yeah. absolutely wild. And, and, like, the thing about what, especially with John Wick, is, I mean, it's true about Mission Impossible, which is based on uh, a TV series, but doesn't really follow the the TV series at all, really, in the film series. But the thing about John Wick, even even more so than Mission Impossible, is that it's an origin- It's it's fully original. Like, again... When you when when this first movie came out, no one knew who John Wick is, who who John Wick was. I mean, this this is a totally new story, totally new franchise. And so the fact that Keanu Reeves was able to draw audiences into this franchise shows that you can really take him anywhere when you're talking about the action genre, because people are going to go to the movie to see Keanu Reeves, even if they don't know what the movie is about. And I think that he and Tom Cruise are kind of those guys for me. Like you. Of course, Cruise does have the Mission Impossible franchise that people know him for now. But in the 90s, Mission Impossible wasn't a known thing. You look at other movies he's done, like American Made, Edge of Tomorrow, I've ever heard of. But because of Tom Cruise, um, because of the name, people go to see them. They turn out to be big successes. And I think that Keanu Reeves has become that same type of guy now. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe just to talk a little bit more specifically about the performance in this movie, I talked about how I thought it was a better balance. And and I think that was because not every single line in the movie was one word with like this infinite gravitas applied to it. You get a little bit more uh, quote-unquote banter. And I think that largely is built around some of his conversations with 
Winston, the the manager of the Continental, with uh, I forget the name of the concierge, but him as well. I think he's played Lance by Reddick, yeah. Well, yeah, he's played by Lance yeah. Reddick, but I can't remember the the character's name. And then also, as much as you know, you mentioned that you wish that Halle Berry had done a little bit more in this movie and been a little bit better. I think that the introduction of that character into Keanu Reeves's spotlight, I think, helps him kind of unpack that fierceness and that intensity a little bit which is something that was really good for for this performance in the movie for me yeah especially that dynamic you mentioned between him and ian mcshane i think i saw someone describe it on letterboxd as a a real like uh, alex trebek ken jennings dynamic and i think that's really the perfect way of of summing it up and again really plays into that intensity that keanu brings to all of his performances so yeah they definitely did a really good job with that in this movie uh, although, you know, I'm a fan of his performance in all of the movie. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we just rattled off a bunch of members of the supporting cast. So I think it's probably a good place to start there. There really isn't another performance besides maybe Ian McShane's that's of like the importance to the movie. I should, uh, as Keanu Reeves, it feels like there's just a bunch of other people in this film that get about 20, you know, to 30 minutes of screen time. And that includes, of course, Halle Berry, who we mentioned already, Ian McShane, Lance Reddick, Mark Dacascos. Uh, Asia Kate Dillon, I think is is the yeah. Inquisitor's name or the Adjudicator. Adjudicator, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And Lawrence Fishburne, of course. How could I forget that? And then Angelica Houston. There's just a long list of people who have a little bit of screen time, and but their time to leave an impact is there. Do you think anyone does leave an impact? Yeah. So I think maybe one of the areas where the second one was a little weak was in some of the supporting cast. Um, yeah. The most of the the antagonists in the movies weren't very in the second movie weren't very memorable. Uh, and I think that you can't say that about this movie. I think that the two new additions uh, of Asia Kate Dillon and Mark Descascus, is that how you say his name? Not sure, yeah. Um, were really strong additions. Um, first of all, I think that Asia Kate Dillon, as the adjudicator, brings this real intensity to her role and um, like steely cool that I think Halle Berry is also trying to bring to her role, but with uh, less to, to a lesser degree of success. Um, and you know, she she's kind of the 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 adjudicator is sort of the moral enforcer behind the high table. You know, the person who makes sure that everyone is following the rules. And in that context, I think her performance works well because she's a very no nonsense, very uh, you know takes charge when she comes onto the scene, even when she's in the midst of you know, some of the world's most deadly assassins, which, I mean, we don't really see in this movie, but it doesn't seem like she has really any sort of background in killing. Um, I imagine we might see that in the next movie. It's very possible. Yeah. Um, but but then also Mark Descascos, who plays this, like, sushi chef, um, that is, I guess if you had to point to someone as the main antagonist in the movie, it would be him. Yeah, his name's um, Zero. Yeah, Zero, right. Yeah. I, is that ever said in the movie? Probably that not. That's his name? Yeah, but... Uh, I I think I thought he his performance had a, a little bit of a comic edge to it, which I enjoyed uh, because while of course he's trying to kill John Wick, there's also these sort of moments where he sort of like fanboy breaks kayfabe, right? And he's yeah, like, yeah. he yeah he he admires who John Wick is, and again that's one of those things you talk about how the movie's done such a good job of like this movie's a product of what they've they've done so well building in the first two movies. We understand why he has this view of John Wick because we've seen John mm -hmm. Wick for almost, you know, three movies uh, coming into this. So we understand why all these people are hyping John Wick up, why they're, why they're all gassing him up the whole time um, because, you know, he's an unstoppable killing machine. And so I liked what Mark Descascos brought uh, in addition to Asia Kate Dillon. And I mean, yeah, the, the returning members of the cast are there for a reason. It's because they all play off Keanu Reeves really well. Obviously, this isn't Lawrence Fishburne's first time doing that. I think if... You know, if you had to point to one of those performances, his might be the one where, you know, it's kind of a throwaway role. It is. He, um, he has probably the least screen time yeah. of any of these roles. I think mean, maybe five minutes on screen. Uh-huh. But I think that that, um, that central trio, trio of, of Keanu, Lance Reddick, and Ian McShane. It all comes together. In the right, yeah. Really the, well. the climactic way that it comes together uh, is really interesting. And even beyond that, final uh battle sequence where fight sequence that where where it all comes together uh there's some twists that happen sort of with yeah. the relationship between these three characters that really are gonna play into what I, what the fourth movie is going to be about I, I suspect so i appreciate the way that they played off of the relationship that they built over these three movies and 
did went in some directions that we weren't expecting. I think Angelica Houston is someone who didn't really come up, and I think that's because it's not a throwaway cast, but you feel like when you first see her in the movie that you're going to, she's going to be more of an important character yeah. going forward. And, she, you know, you get your five to ten minutes with her. She pops up one more time after that sequence, but it's done. And so, you know, in that sense, it's a little bit disappointing, but also no character overstays their welcome, really, which is one thing that I think it does really well. As much as you might want to learn more about these characters, the performances themselves feel right for the most part, and none of the characters get boring or overstay their welcome. And I think that contributes to one of the things that I was talking about earlier is that you get that you know, small drops of lore here and there. It makes you wonder a little bit more about this thing. And then, oh, wait, now we've moved on to this thing. Oh, uh, what, what does that mean? But it's part of the kind of aura and the essence of these movies. It makes you wonder about, oh, what does the rest of this world look like? And I think a lot, a lot of the way they treat their supporting cast is exactly that. And one of the ones that, you know, I agree with you, what you're talking about around, you know, Ian McShane and Lance Reddick being the ones that most closely tie in and play off John Wick the best. Halle Berry, for me, Again, I think it was because she probably spent so much time and put so much effort into preparation for the combat sequences that she was a part of, which really no one else on the cast list has to really think about, that probably invest, she invested more of her time into that and getting ready for those, for those sequences, and maybe some of her other aspects of her role kind of got left by the wayside, and I, I don't want to ding her too hard for that. But because I think she does do the action sequences extremely well, uh, she and as much as playing off of Keanu Reeves, she's probably even you know in some sense she's even more serious than, than Keanu yeah. is, which is saying something you know to all, you know, the conversation we just had. Kind of the other side of the coin, you have Marta Cascos, who is this character who has to worry about the violence, has to worry about the action, plays off John Wick in the complete opposite way of being this lighthearted guy. Uh, even to the point, you know, right up to his, you know, his final moments in the movie, which it, it's an interesting juxtaposition of those two That's characters. A pretty good fight, John. <laughs> and then, yeah, to the new, you know, the other new characters, while well, Asia Kate Dillon, you know, I agree with all the points that you made about learning a little bit about her. Maybe we'll learn more in the next movie. And I think the fact that they're actually gender binary, and I think that also adds to the, you know, the intrigue that's built around this character. The fact that, you know. It's not, you can't immediately associate certain you know preconceptions or stereotypes uh, that that we might have about any person just as we as we see them, and I think that that is something that is it's really it's a really good casting. I think is is what I mean to say because we don't know that much about the high table still even after this movie, and I think this character represents the high table really well, and it's one of the aspects that I liked about the character. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. Awesome. All right. And moving on, let's talk about the plot of the movie. Something that, that I mentioned earlier that's not always the thing that you come for when you come to see a John Wick movie. But did the plot um, kind of exceed your expectations? I think that that's something that you might have been alluding to in, in your general impressions. Yeah. And we'll get into spoilers here now. Yeah, so. good. Yeah. Spo spoiler warnings for things that happen late in the, late in the movie. I think that what I really like about the plot of this movie is the way that it really dives into the mythos of John Wick and explains sort of what makes him different from all of the other killers that we see? Because obviously, uh, you know, again, on a superficial high level, he's a killer just like the rest of them. But we get some glimpses into why exactly John Wick has become John Wick. Like, right, wh why people know the name John Wick. It's because he's a different kind of killer. It's because there's still, he still has a heart, right? Like, there's still emotion behind this character. He still feels something. Uh, and, like, one moment where we see that is in a subway station. Not the first time we've seen a subway station pop up in one of these movies, but uh, there's a confrontation between him and Mark Discoscus's characters, and it's a crowded subway station. They face each other like they're they're in the midst of a, con of a conflict, and a group of kids walks in between them. Keanu stops, doesn't take a shot or anything, and as they walk past, you know, Mark Discoscos, Zero, says, says to him, you know, that's what makes you different, John Wick. Uh, I wouldn't have thought twice. Like, I would have just shot, even with the kids walking right in between them. And I think that's why what makes the ending so shocking, right? Because what you know what it does end up happening since we're talking spoilers is that Ian McShane's character Winston turns on John Wick in order to save himself or save his role as the manager of the Continental Hotel um he in order to sort of make amends with the adjudicator he shoots John and you know throws him off pushes him off the building and i think that the reason that is so shocking why John is is so taken off uh, you know taken off guard is because he values he values those relationships like that, like the one that he's built with Winston, and yeah. he's not. He also had the opportunity to kill Winston right, in the movie to right. save his own credibility. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he's not self interested in the way that 
you know, a lot of the other characters in the movie are, and, and you know, Winston is made out to be of the same ilk as John Wick, and so when that doesn't turn out to be the case, uh, I guess it just further reinforces that idea that John Wick uh, is different from all of these people. And, you know, while we get sort of the revenge subplots in the in the first and second movie, um, you know, get him getting, him avenging the death of his wife uh, and dog obviously speaks to his emotional capacity. I don't think we really understand that, understood that in the greater world, you know, that this movie has built of, uh, you know, this whole network of assassins until we got this movie. And so that's, those are the directions that I really enjoyed uh, of the plot, because I think that um, in addition to, you know, the moments that keep you guessing, I think it showed that there's a little more substance there than uh, you might think to assign this movie when you see some of the stunts that are on display. Yeah, definitely. And then to, to finish off kind of the full spoilers that we've been discussing, it's one of those things where the final, the very final moments of the movie is, you know, we learned that Lawrence Fishburne's character, the Bowery King, was who we thought to have been murdered by the by Zero and the Adjudicator early in the film, has actually survived, and Keanu uh, Reeves' John Wick is going to, at least seemingly, be teaming up with the Bowery King to take down uh, the Adjudicator, the High Table, and then, of, of course, Winston, based yeah. on the developments of the movie, Winston as well, and it... You know, we talk about that first movie being a revenge story. I think this is going. The next movie is going to be maybe a slightly different kind of revenge story, and it'll be really interesting now with this whole context built up. How that you know how that plays out again, even further exploring how John Wick is different from everybody else in this series. Because to me, I didn't expect the story to be anything good because I didn't particularly enjoy the first two movies' stories, but the third one really captured me. And I think what the third movie did really well is that it knew. That everyone coming to the movie, you know, didn't really care that much about the story. And so, no, you know, not every five minutes you're not getting, you're not gripped by the story throughout, right? But in the moments that count, you are gripped by the story. And the story does hit the right notes and do something either surprising or satisfying in those moments. And I think that's a sign of this movie finally knowing exactly what it was and really striking that right balance between, you know, what you came to see and also maybe what you didn't expect to see but are really enjoying yeah, and I mean that's that's the key to keeping a franchise going. Really, is is introducing new things that you're not expecting in each movie. I think too many franchises get complacent with just doing the same thing and saying, "Well, you know, the audiences loved this last one." Yeah, it's why sequels are often not that good, right? Yeah. Um, but the John Wick franchise has not done that, and I I can't see them doing that in the future. Yeah, and I think that that you know that comment right there leads me into the final question that I have before we end our wrap up phase is, you know, how far do you think this series can go? What could it accomplish, and what do you think it will accomplish? Well, I mean, to give you the classic law school answer, I think it depends. A lot of it is going to you know depend on what happens in the fourth movie, right? Like. Um, maybe it is the culmination Who knows? because know. you know going yeah. into this movie I kind of thought it would be the last one right so I mean who knows what will happen in the fourth one I'll, I'll probably go in feeling the same thing but uh, they found ways to keep it going in a way that isn't like oh obvious like obvious setup for a sequel um, like in a way that's sort of annoying and obnoxious sometimes in movies like leave you, uh, you know, yeah. on the edge of a cliff just so they can uh, set up a sequel. I think the movie had, I think that these movies have found a way to naturally work it into the story um, to where, it yes, does tell yes, a very there's, story. right, yes, they're setting up a sequel, but it's also a natural ending point for the movie. Yeah, who, who's to say that they can't do that again? Um, again, and I, as much as they've improved in this franchise, I'm, I'm willing to go anywhere with them at this point. Um and so, yeah, maybe this becomes the next James Bond, right? Maybe we get twenty-two or twenty-three movies, but you know, the difference is you'll be getting these movie every, movies every two years, right? And I, and I can't six. see Keanu making it long enough to do twenty-two or twenty-three. Of course, and and I I don't know that I would want a John Wick movie um, mm-hmm. with Son of John Wick or something. <laughs> we get Shia LaBeouf yeah. in there to play the Son of Jeez. John Wick, and we'll yeah. be good to go. I mean, for me, you know, the thing that you're talking about is that the first movie, of course, wasn't banking on a sequel being in play right it tells a completely Mm self-contained story no setup for a sequel but then the second one comes in you know look guys we did a really good job with this first one i think we can bank that we're good enough to do a third one and the third one does the same right and it'll be really interesting to see if they do continue to set up sequels in their movies or if this kind of john wick chapter two three and four become this very coherent trilogy yeah trilogy of movies and where it goes beyond that for me in terms of going outside of the realm of keanu because 
I mean, Keanu is in his 50s now. There's only so much more he can do, even as fast as they yeah. try to put these movies out. Unless they film 10 movies consecutively and <laughs> set it up like that. Like, there's only so much that Keanu is going to be able to do versus his physical capabilities. I mean, maybe he has three or four mo- of these movies left in him. I'm not going to put a judgment on that, but there are limitations to it. So it would be really interesting to see where if they tried to do something outside of, you know, explicitly a John Wick movie yeah to you know from my perspective i'm very hesitant about that don't get me wrong but the way that they craft this world is interesting enough for me to give us give a spinoff movie a shot right maybe the same way that some people might have been but that's just something that i could see developing but for me the reason that i'm going to this movie right now is the keanu reeves chad stahelski combination and it'd be really interesting to see if they could capture that outside of it but for now we know that a fourth movie is going to be coming we'll see if more can pay on that the simple answer at this point is, as long as they keep making good movies, they should keep making them. At this point, I'm on board for whatever they yeah. try to do with the fourth one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I think that that will pretty much wrap up our discussion. So let's enter our wrap-up phase. Now, what was your favorite scene from, from Parabellum? Well, you know, as much as we talk about the improvements in the story, I think it really comes down to the action sequences, right, when you're talking about the standout scenes and moments. And for me, the knife fight inside the museum is the action sequence that really stood out the most in this movie, I think. Again, the creativity, the fast pace of the action scene, you know, they're flinging knives all around. Um, There's a lot of antagonists coming in, um, and he's burying one, two, three knives. I mean, it's the most probably Hong Kong martial arts influence scene in the movie, maybe. And it's really just not something we've seen in the John Wick franchise or even out outside of the John Wick franchise to that point. And it ends with a really like satisfying moment of John Wick throwing an axe at this one guy who, uh, you know, tries to, tries to, uh, have, have a last wind and, uh, and fight back. And, uh, John Wick there finishes him skull. off. Yeah. And it's just a great conclusion to what I think is a super kinetic and stylish action sequence that works really well in, in a first half hour, the first half hour, I mean, you know, as good as the movie is overall, I think the first half hour is probably the best 30 minutes in the whole series. It, it was really just one fantastic action sequence after another. Because really, after that knife fight, like five minutes later is when you get the horse. Yeah, um, I was about because I was about to say that because you know, as much as it's it's hyped, and, and I don't think the horse riding scene is necessarily the best part, but I was so entertained by how John Wick was able to yeah. get the horse to buck and just destroy several people was so entertaining. I do agree that probably the best scene in the movie is that the knife fight where he's literally throwing, you know, he buries three, four knives in people. They're still moving, mm-hmm. you know, takes one out, throws it at another, uh, uses some someone as like a, a body shield, et cetera. It's, it's really great action sequences. And then for me, just to kind of continue on that kind of animal fighting motif that we just talked about with the horse, you know, I liked what they were able to do with with the dogs that ha- the Halle Berry, the German Shepherds that Halle Berry's character, Sophia, had and it's one of those things where I, I know I leaned over to you in the middle of the movie and I was like, I wonder if Statohelski in like the writers' room for John Wick was like, you know what we really want to do in this movie is the end game is to have dogs that we're going to use in a fighting. So you know what? Let's go find a couple German shepherds. Let's train them to fight. In five years from now, we can have them in one of our movies as like attack dogs. And I think I don't know if that's yeah. how it happened, but I could totally see that sure. as how it played out. And I think that's just so awesome because it's a really cool uh, addition. And the way that they were able to choreograph the dogs to add that into the choreography of the movie, it's just it's insane. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What would you give John Wick 3? Yeah, you know, Scott, it was around this time last year when we got what was the best action movie of last year, Mission Impossible Fallout. And, you know, I'm not going to be so bold as to say we won't see a better one this year, but I'm not sure where it's going to come from. If you're taking Avengers Endgame out of the picture, I guess. Hobbs and Shaw. Um, Maybe Hobbs and Shaw. But if if you're talking about pure action, I'm not sure if you're going to see anything better this year. Um this is a great movie and uh, a, the best entry in the series so far, 8.9. Yeah, Scott, I think we're really on the same page for this one. This is my favorite film uh, in this franchise. It's you know, one of my favorite films of the year, straight up. I, you yeah. know, oh, absolutely. We, the fact that we're on the same page is really telling. I'm giving it an 8.8. Great. All right. Well, that should just about do it for our discussion of John Wick 3. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing some recent news and a couple trailers. We'll be right back.
Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, lots of things, of course, happening every week in the entertainment industry, but unfortunately, we're starting with a sad, some sad news today. Just last week, Doris Day uh, le- left this world, and uh, so we'll just give a big R.I.P. Yeah, it is sad, but at the same time, she was 97. So, um, you know, we talk a lot of times, I think, about people who are gone way too soon on the show. Um, but there is something bittersweet about the fact uh, that she was able to live such a long and fulfilling life. Well, I can't say I'm familiar with a ton of her work. Uh, I am, of course, familiar with maybe her most famous role in Hitchcock's uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the remake that Hitchcock did of his own movie, which contains like one of the greatest suspense scenes in any movie, that opera house uh, scene where she sings Que Sera Sera, the famous song that she's known for, that has been like riffed on and played on in so many movies uh like mission impossible rogue nation had a scene in an opera house that definitely owed a lot to that scene i think she will be remembered for a lot of other things in addition to just that movie um and yeah like you said uh, a great career so r.i.p uh, moving on to some happier news, I think. Uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll wait to see whether this is happier news. We learned this week that in, in, in the transaction with, I believe, Comcast, Disney gained full control of Hulu. Yeah, I mean, just another cog in the Disney machine, right, at this point. Um, they are uh, slowly, slowly bent on world domination, uh, and they're getting there uh, quicker every single day. Um, and this is just another example, uh, you know, It'll be interesting to see what direction they go with Hulu, considering, you know, they're going to have their own streaming service. Maybe Hulu is sort of the the medium for more adult programming, for more like R-rated type stuff, because uh, they've explicitly said that Disney Plus isn't going to feature like any R-rated movies or anything like that. Um, Maybe that's why... Uh, th- that's where Hulu is going to fit into the equation, but I guess that's the biggest question for me at this point about uh, this acquisition. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that they'll probably do, I think that that is a good point. They'll probably drop some of their more adult or mature content onto Hulu. But, you know, Hulu has also done a lot more recently than just, you know, streaming content. It, it could be a source for licensing content for Disney. I'd imagine you won't be getting too much licensed content on Disney+. Plus. So when you combine that with the fact that, you know, Hulu is also a source for live streaming television now for some people too. Some people are using Hulu for that. Uh, Hulu's capabilities, or at least the breadth of what it's doing, uh, is a lot wider than what Disney Plus will be doing, which will be the house for all that, you know, kids or teens or, you know, less mature uh, topic-focused media. And that, of course, being Marvel, Star Wars, you know, Disney animated, live action, things like that. Uh, So you'll be getting different, very different kinds of content, but it will be interesting that some people will be being... Uh, double for Disney for Disney's content, so um, yeah. and I'm sure I'll be one of them. To be more fair. drops in the bucket for Disney. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Bond twenty five update this week. You know, recently we I should say at the beginning of last week we heard that you know production and shooting had been suspended after Daniel Craig suffered an injury on set. But at the end, of the, by the end of the week, we found out that he was okay, and you know I think this coming week he will return to the set and they will resume shooting. Not the first time we've heard of action stars getting hurt uh, shooting sequences, and not even the first time we've we've heard Daniel Craig getting hurt shooting sequences, Scott. But do you put any stock into this and and what the final output of the movie will be? I mean, you know, I, I don't want to say I, I take pleasure in another man's pain, but I love when uh, actors do get injured not seriously on the set of action movies um, because I think it just shows the commitment that they uh, are bringing to their role. I, you know, obviously we had the same thing with Tom Cruise uh, with Mission Impossible Fallout did break his leg. Um, but I'd love to see an actor giving it all uh, in the way that Daniel Craig obviously is um, in this movie. And I think we'll see that reflected uh, when Bond 25 drops, just as we've seen it reflected in the other Bond films that he starred in. Absolutely. The Chadwick Boseman-led 21 Bridges, we found out this past week, has been pushed back from its original date, which was just after July 4th on July 12th, all the way back to the end of September. Does this concern you at all, or do you think this is just a, a replacement, given you know what's surrounding it? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I tend to think that this is more about where the movie was going to be released than it is about the quality of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope that's the case, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, summer's a crowded time for movies. Maybe Especially the 4th of July really built out. There's a lot of stuff around Right, it. and maybe they yeah. th- thought that having the Russo brothers as producers was going to be, you know, a big draw for this. And who knows, maybe they have seen some things 
in in the wake of the trailer being released uh, to suggest to them that it's not going to be as big of a windfall as they were hoping for, or that uh, it might be better placed at another time in the year when it's not going to have competition, uh, because maybe it's not going to be able to compete against you know some of the l later summer movies like uh, I don't know Men in Black, Hobbs and Shaw, stuff like that, which we're going to get sort of in the back half of the summer. And Men in Black's actually um, June fourteenth, so okay. that's, a, that's well, a little bit sooner. But to your point, no, I mean, it's coming out a week after Spider Man Far From Home. Yeah, it's coming out. Uh, up against or at least it was going to be up against several not necessarily like huge box office hit movies from you know what i'm seeing but it's only it, it would have been coming out a week before the lion king it would have been coming out two weeks before once upon a time in hollywood and then the week after once upon a time in hollywood fast and furious hobbs and shaw exactly to your point so it's tough to see where it would really fit in in that schedule but when you fast forward to september right now you have it chapter two at the beginning of the month and then going forward the goldfinch the following week and then Downton Abbey and allegedly Rambo 5 Last Blood, which we haven't heard anything about whatsoever. That's supposed to come out then? It's oh. slated for release then, but we have heard nothing about it, so I'm hmm. very curious about whether that will actually come out. So the point is, 21 Bridges fitting in at the end of September makes a lot of sense. I mean, maybe we'll add a few movies, we'll see what happens, and then, of course, the week after it's going to be the Joker movie and Woman in the Window, so maybe it'll, it'll face some competition in its second week. But at least it feels like it's going to be a little bit less crowded over there in September. Yeah, I mean, I'm still, at the end of the day, I'm still looking forward to the movie um, and, you know, hope that they can put out a good product. And I, I, I have confidence that they will. Yeah. And you know what? If it needed another month of editing and a little bit of work, now it has that. And that's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we've in recent weeks, we've learned about, you know, of course, some franchises either being expanded or rebooted. You know, we obviously we have the Child's Play franchise being rebooted later this year. We've had a lot of news recently about the Candyman franchise getting a reboot. And this week we learned about another horror franchise that's getting an expansion. And that's through Chris Rock, and that's of the Saw franchise. It's getting a spin-off film, Scott. Are you a fan of the Saw movies? Does this get you excited at all? Or are you just like, okay, great, cool, we'll get a Saw movie? Yeah, I can't say that I am a huge fan of Saw. Although I do like horror, I'm not really into the like torture porn uh, type stuff, which I think uh, Saw probably leans a little bit too heavily into it sometimes. But I think Chris Rock is a very out of left field, but interesting name to be taking this over. You look at what Jordan Peele yeah, was able to do coming to from say, the world yeah. of comedy um, into the world of horror, and you know you can all we can only hope that Chris Rock can bring something even marginally similar to what Jordan Peele has been able to do with Get Out and Us. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. For me, I really liked the first Saw movie, and then all the other ones just are so far... The classic horror problem. ...off the rails. Yeah, I mean, we said that Sequel just last suck, week yeah. with, uh, what was it, the Hellraiser yeah. franchise. So, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I can't say I'm over the moon about this one, but we'll see. Yeah. Bob Iger has confirmed, kind of follow up on something we talked about last week, that the new Star Wars movies that we talked about that are going to be released in 2022, 2024, and 2026 will be Benioff and Weiss written films. So, Scott, I guess my question leading out of that is, what does that mean for Ryan Johnson? What does that mean? Does that mean that maybe his movies are going to be put on Disney Plus? Or, an interesting take here, do you think that Ryan Johnson might be directing these Benioff and Weiss written movies? I haven't even thought, I hadn't even thought about that possibility. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't think that that's going to be the case. Like, I think... Yeah, I don't think so either. Because, you know, Ryan Johnson, he, he likes wanna, creative control. He would want to write his stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think, again, we've talked about it before, but with the backlash of the last Jedi, I'd be he hesitant to say to say that Disney is going to get into uh, you know something Ryan Johnson associated in the Star Wars world this soon after the last Jedi. So maybe that's something for down the road after the Benioff and Weiss trilogy, a Real decade, future a decade from now. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe we'll never see it. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I hope we do see it because I mean, we both like the last Jedi a lot. Um, and it would be a shame if Disney were to just sort of give up on this because of some toxic fanboys. Um, yeah. but again, you know, you gotta appeal to the fans with a franchise like this. Uh, you know, you look at Avengers Endgame and you saw how they were able to satisfy such a huge swath of the fan base. And I think obviously that's what Disney wants with the Star Wars movies. So yeah. maybe we'll never see them. I think it'll be really interesting to see how it develops, but to your point, it could be a decade before we really get the full extent of how it will develop. Think about that. We could be like 35 years old by the time these Ryan Johnson movies come out. 
I mean, I'm inclined to say that it's less. <laughs> it's more likely that it will never happen than it will happen in 15 years. Yeah, I think I think that's probably true. Yeah. All right. We'll change gears now. Talk about our two trailers, Scott. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about you know large, big budget movie trailers, but this week we have two trailers for some lower budget films that we're both pretty excited about. First, let's start with Midsommar. We got a new trailer for this movie just this past week. And what did you think of the trailer? I mean, we got a lot more uh, and a better understanding of who Florence Pugh's character is in this movie, which I think was one of the big selling points, as well as uh, just a more glimpse into Ari Aster's mind and, and how he creates genre films. First of all, this is actually the first trailer. We, we did have a teaser, but this is the first official trailer. That's true. That's a good point. Um, the, the original was just like a one-minute teaser. This yeah, is the full, yeah. first full trailer. And I think, again, what's still grabbing me about this is the fact that it's in the daylight, right? Like, we never see horror movies that take place in the daylight. Uh, I think that that's really the thing, the interesting part of this. In addition to like, we have some like cult type stuff going on here. We have like, it's almost like Bonnaroo gone wrong or something, or Co Coachella gone, gone, gone wrong. wrong or something, right? You know, you have like this sort of like hippie sort of festival like feel to. I mean, like there, made it there is an actual wrong. festival like that is that the movie is centered around, and it really doesn't look like many things that we've seen before uh, in the horror world, uh, and. After Ari Aster, after what he did with Hereditary, um, I think that I liked Hereditary a lot. I thought it lost, went off the rails in the last 30 minutes. I think that I'm looking for him to capitalize on all of the promise that he showed in Hereditary in this movie. And nothing that I've seen so far suggests to me that he's not going to be able to do that. And when you have Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner involved uh, as your leads, I think that's only going to help this movie. Yeah, I think I think we learned so in this trailer we learned a lot more about the like I mentioned the context for Florence Pugh's character. We understand that this relationship that she has with Jack Rayner <laughs> is a little bit strained, a on little the bit rocks. Yeah, on the rocks for sure. And the whole purpose of taking this vacation with a couple of their friends was to try to you know rekindle that relationship. And so that is a foundation for a horror movie. Maybe it's not new, right? But I think that the what they're doing with this. A lot of the, you know, going to Sweden to what's supposed to be this festival that turns out to just be some, you know, really dark pagan rituals, I guess, mm -hmm. I guess is a super interesting context for me. It's not the type of horror movie that I've seen before, but it's the type of horror movie that I'm interested in seeing. And that's the that's the thing that hooks me the most. That's what I like to hear. There you go. All right, Scott, the other trailer that we got this week was for a movie that's coming out only a little bit sooner than that. And that is a trailer, a Red Band trailer, no less, for The Dead Don't Die Starring Adam Driver and Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, Selena Gomez. The cast list goes on and on. Scott, what did you think of this Red Band trailer? Yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm I'm really excited for this movie. I think that the trailers are promising, but at the same time, the reactions have been somewhat mixed from Cannes. Um, so I don't know. It does look like my sort of thing. Like the sense of humor is very deadpan, um, yeah. which I like a lot. And very I, campy, very deadpan. yeah. The the chemistry between Bill Murray and Adam Driver. Um, looks like something that uh, I'm going to be into. Um, but, you know, it remains to be seen, I guess, whether Jim Jarmusch will be able to tie this all together into a satisfying package. Uh, maybe this is an example of a movie like Detective Pikachu, you know, that they sold the trailers really well, and then the movie was a little bit of a disappointment, but we'll see. Yeah, I think one of the things that I could totally see this movie being really, f I'm looking here at the runtime as 100, 103 minutes. I can see this movie being a lot of fun for about, 80 of those minutes and then the last 10 to 20 it just like not figuring out how to wrap up its story yeah. it could totally be one of those experiences i'm not saying that's how it's going to be mm -hmm. i personally haven't checked out those reviews from cans although i have heard the same thing just from mainly listening to you i guess <laughs> but you so know you do listen to me <laughs> I, I do i do but the, i think the i think the key point here is that it we're clearly sold on at least the two of us are sold on the campiness the chemistry between the two leads you know the feel of the movie the kind of low-budget zombie uh, kind of horror-slash-thriller aspect of it. I'm not even quite sure what genre it kind of... I guess zombie... I mean, it's almost a... It's a comedy, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's supposed to be a comedy, not a horror movie. Uh, a kind of, so a zombie comedy film. We're sold on a that. A zomcom. A zomcom. That, that, there you go. Heard it here first. Mm. Uh, no, you did not hear it here first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> been used before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, kind of a zomcom feel, but the point, like, can they make a movie out of it, basically, I guess is the real question that we have left. Yeah. Um, we'll see. When's the release for this? July? Uh, June 14th. June 14th? All right. Well, we'll know yeah. pretty soon then, I guess. Yeah, because Midsommar is uh, July 4th. Right. And this has come out before that. All right, so that's it. That should do it for our episode 43 of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? 
No, but I hope, well, other than that, I hope that you will listen to our Champs Lunch episode, um, if you haven't yet, about uh, our time at the Houston event, because we had an incredible time. Uh, and and you won't have listened to it yet, because that episode's coming out later this week. Okay. Yeah. Um, but we had an incredible time, and we'll, are, you know, are really excited to share our experience. Uh, so hopefully you'll, uh, you'll check that out right here in the same feed where you listen to something like it, Scott. Yeah, I know. It was, a, it was an incredible experience, and you'll hear all about how incredible it was over there because instead of taking 45 minutes to talk about it here we're probably going to take 45 minutes to talk about it over there probably so yeah <laughs> all right awesome where can people find you on twitter i'm at scarby dent and i can be found at, at shelton 2013 where you on twitter where you can also find our podcast at, at media plug pods we'd love it even more though if you check us out over on our podcast patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods where there are a bunch of different reward tiers over there you can check those out depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast, and we'd appreciate it, even if that's only at the $1 level, because, again, you get all the episodes early, and that $1 a month would really help us, help support this podcast to, to keep growing and also just keep doing what we're doing, uh, which was something we really enjoy. So if you, But if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd appreciate it if you could rate and review us, as well as subscribe and share, so that we can continue to reach that broader audience that I just talked about. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. Next week, we'll be back with this year's second live-action Disney remake, Aladdin. For now, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.